Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. Great writers making waves with the word, all in conversation with me, Liam Bishop. And it's part two of our Flit Eye special and this week I'm joined by Samatar Elmi. Samatar is a poet, PhD candidate and educator. His debut collection, Portrait of Colossus, is, among many other things, a musical and rhythmical examination of identity. Samatar takes influence from contemporary political events, antiquity and Somali, oral history to not only question how we make sense of our world, but poetry's capacity to articulate experience. The collection is called A Portrait of Colossus, and you often give us images of scaling or climbing heights in your poems. I just wanted to start by talking about this idea of Colossus. The, the idea of empire and, and notions of kind of colonization and, and, and the fallout, the post-colonial fallout that kind of, you know, has had a, a massive impact on, on many people's lives. Or I think everybody's life, whether we all appreciate it or not, but certainly in a, in a very immediate and intimate sense in my life, um, seems almost like this strange monolithic, you know, edifice that is difficult to really comprehend, almost statuesque. And I've, I revisit it a lot really in this collection. I think that kind of happened uh, initially quite unconsciously, uh, you know, just, just returning to the myths and the, uh, the founding stories of, of what has become Western civilization. The idea of this, this, this massive statue, which inevitably is, you know, is lost to history, you know, it gets uh, lost in an earthquake, but was this symbol of, of, of great Western power, that the symbol of that really kind of brought me to, to want to write about it, I think. Yeah, because, um, so yeah, Colossus was this great big statue, was it, on the island of Rhodes, I think it was. And it's become an image then of empire and colonialization. And you, the way your relationship to it is quite a, I won't say, I don't want to say it's confused from your perspective, it's confused from the kind of reader's perspective. You Sometimes you are kind of looking up at this thing uh, and you're kind of wondering how to scale it and climb it. And other times you're kind of at a distance to it. And sometimes you associate heights with an uncertainty. Sometimes it looks like it's an ascent, a place to, to reach, but also it seems like an unattainable uh, ideal as well. I, w- I want to scale his limbs um, at great heights, all languages are blurred. It's this reference to the Tower of Babel and language. So I have mm. that into the art of poetry and then stepping out of you know, these ideas about colonization to, to write a collection sort of about something with this great big theme. You know, it's funny because I think um, particularly at, at my, the stage I'm at with my writing, um, it's, it's very unconscious. And um, often uh, I, I read, you know, Don Patterson describe uh, the whole uh, process of interpretation as being one in which once the poet is done with the writing of the thing and has put it out in the world, then it's it's up to everybody else to kind of excavate the meaning that jumps out at them. And, and often it's not the same as as what the author might initially have intended. And, and I feel I feel that's happened a few times with people I've spoken to about this collection and, and they've they've picked up on things that uh, perhaps wasn't immediately in, in the forefront of my mind. So I say that almost as a as a as a a caveat really to <laughs> uh, answering your question. Uh, <laughs> um, 
because yeah, I I don't feel I have all the answers to to what I'm trying to uh, you know put forward. It's more for sort of feelings really. Uh, often, you know, one of the things I think that that I find so fascinating about about this symbol of of a statue and 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 kind of Western Western power, Western civilization. Uh, you know, whether it be through the lens of colonization or, or, or just Western civilization writ large, is that there are a lot of things to admire. There, there is often this tension in, 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 you know, the children of colonized people who were displaced by that power and, and had, their, had a lot of their autonomy, you know, the trajectory of, of history radically altered, um, is that there have been positives. You know, and, and it's like is that, that tension always remains. I mean, I, I worked in the Middle East as an ESL teacher for many years, and I was very conscious of the fact that I was I was a a soft power, you know, post-colonial agent for the British, really. You know, um, <laughs> though we were doing a lot of good. <laughs> so like this 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 this, this constant tension. And I think I try and play with that. Uh, at various parts uh, in in the in the collection, um, there's the poem uh, "Rum," where I'm I'm challenging my parents, who you know want me to be more traditional and want me to be more Somali and more kind of you know orthodox about you know the way I practice my religion, etc. Um, but it's like how how can that be possible when I've been raised in in the West, you know, you can't pick and choose how you've been influenced once you've once you've been raised somewhere. Traditionally, was you know for centuries was a very a very Sufi form of Islam, and uh, as with most places, they've they've kind of had a a, a strong influence from uh, kind of Saudi orthodoxy. Um, there's a lot of tension with with looking at this statue. Um, you have to you, you know you are faced with the need to want to scale it. To, to get that perspective that comes with civilization. Um, and then I think also I felt as if the immigrant himself was a colossus. Family is from Somalia. You were born in London and the tensions, because there is a lot about, there's a, there's a contrast between height and kind of a solid footing. And that's a phrase that you do use. And I love this idea of footing, both in the sense of groundedness, you know, feet on the ground, being in the world, but also poetry and feet and, and metrics. Um, and one of the things you do write a lot about is trees. And this gives you a kind of great perspective of something, again, tall, giant, but also roots and visible roots uh, as well. And I'm not sure if that tension plays out in this imagery. So for me, civilization contrasts not only with culture, but it also contrasts somewhat with nature. And, you know, civilization is this, this thing that's very specific to the, to the, to the region you know, there's built environments and things that, that which come to play there, and um, which can often be very alienating. Um, whereas I feel like there's something about nature which is all inclusive, and I try and explore explore some of that because I think I think the most British I've ever felt, or the most English I've ever felt, is just camping. You know, or climbing a climbing a hill, or climbing a mountain, or you know, just just sitting around some trees, okay. and yeah, you know, and and, and sitting in the park and I feel that anywhere I go you know if, if I'm in Spain um you know if I'm in Africa wherever I am in Africa it's the nature that that feels inclusive 
you know, it doesn't ask you any questions. It's happy you're there. Um, you can enjoy its beauty. You can engage in and participate in, in the wonder of, of, of the spectacle. Um, whereas I think civilization is alienating for all of us, not just, not just me in my, in my particular uh, post-colonial experience, but you know, I speak to a lot of, a lot of my friends who, who wouldn't, wouldn't identify with any other particular ethnicity other than being British or English or Welsh or whatever. And they feel very alienated by, by modern life. So, um, it, 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 yeah, it's just bringing that, bringing that tension into, into, into focus as well. Jason Allen Passant, the car connect poet. I don't know if you've read any of his work. No, I, I haven't, you know. His essays written in Lights Pain Review. Well, I'm just going to read, where the relationship between blackness, nature, and history is concerned, a few observations are necessary. I will state these badly. Firstly, in disrupting relationships with nature, brackets, dwelling practices, colonialism disrupts ways of knowing the world, knowledge practices. Secondly, the work of coloniality is based on control over nature. Thirdly, part of that mm. control is control of the othered, dangerous, out of place, to be controlled, black body. Um, it, some of the, just this idea of nature and how it you know it's a sense of ownership i don't know it just really shook me on some of the things you're saying actually well <laughs> thank you so much leo because oh wow that is just articulated for me in in, in in just way more accurately than i've ever managed to do or have read elsewhere you know what i've kind of been driving at in many of these poems i think the manual cortez um, and the immortal tree poem is just it's just about that is about how uh, colonial forces and 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 kind of the civilization civilizationary impulse right towards progression towards uh you know infinite rationality of processes and you know until uh you know until eventually you know, us as being irrational beings, you know, we're at the point now where we are now surplus to requirements, you know, where this human being is going to be the next thing to be removed out of the equation. We see it now with automation in 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 in, in kind of the 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 employment sphere, you know. Um we're next, you know, as in this in this ever increasing control to colonize or to civilize um nature and and, and I, I kind of tried to use the bonsai tree as a allegory for, um, uh, for, this, for this process that um, I just haven't been able to articulate as well as, as, uh, as Jason has done. Well, it's interesting you say Manuel Cortez because it's a bonsai tree that you talk about here and bonsai is obviously a lot smaller than um, an oak tree, you know, for argument's sake. And so how then do you bring these very global concerns, very historical concerns, um, very concerning concerns, how do you bring these back into a poem? How do you, you know, how are you trying to articulate? I guess we see how you articulate these concerns because we get the poem, but, you know, there is a kind of sense of anxiety of craft within that poem, I thought. So how do you, you know, how are you, mm. how are these sort of coalescing into the poem? I think there was... Oh, so the, I mean, this poem is probably the, the, the oldest poem in the collection. Um, so when we're talking about craft, uh, it's the one that demonstrates uh, my most infantile kind of command over craft, you know, of all these poems. But I think I tried to capture something about the, you know, there was a, there was a sense 
in you know during the renaissance that you know uh, it's going to get really loud can you hear the the call to prayer now is that what that is is that the uh, call yeah 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 well for listeners that is the call to prayer in the background because samata is in somalia at the moment so um so yeah i think in that position i, I tried to kind of uh, juxtapose almost like two voices let's go to the poem is um it's about it's about a mastery and then you know, it's kind of you take this symbol of a, of a bonsai tree and you contrast it with these great historic events and whether they when you speak about the lisbon earthquake uh, you, you kind of undercut yourself and go um quite a with a sort of, I think it's a little sort of sense of having um, tongue in cheek, but you go, it reminded me of Lisbon before the earthquake, the horrors of the untamed. And the horrors of the untamed is mm. something that does seem to point to quite an existential concern for you. And it's how do we tame, you know, how do I bring this back into a kind of poem or how do I craft this, uh, all these, you know, concerns maybe? A, a very immediate concern that we're at, a, we're at a, an important juncture in. In, in the in, in the history of the of, of the human race and of the planet um i might refer a lot to you know previous mythologies and and, and you know kind of ancient or or, or or distant histories but I, i'm hoping that readers will will get a sense that I'm, I'm i'm trying to make make the point that um these 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 concerns exist today perhaps a more it's it's immediate. It's in front of us. You know, we we we're faced by by so many of these choices. You know, as as a as a civilization, you know, do we want to continue t taming the world around us, um, or do we need to go back to a more um, sustainable model of of engaging with nature? Do you hope you're enjoying the Rippling Pages podcast? If you'd like to keep up to date with the Rippling Pages, why don't you follow it on Instagram at rippling underscore pages. And if you'd like to get in touch with the Rippling Pages podcast, you can email ripplingpagespod at gmail.com. That's ripplingpagespod at gmail.com. So how does that feel as a poet then? You know, what kind of, you know, thinking of the statue of Colossus, I think it's great big you know, figure and representation of power. And we talked about colonial power. How does it feel as a poet, you know, tackling these concerns? The, the tradition of the poet, when you, wherever you go in the world, at, its, at, at the root of that, of, of the need for any kind of culture or community to, to have this, this tradition, is, is to mark events um, and is to, is, to, is to provide meaning. In an, in, in an eloquent way, you know, when I, when I look at the Somali tradition that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed to have access to, when I look at the, you know, European tradition that I'm very blessed to have access to, and then other traditions elsewhere, like the, the griot tradition of, 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 uh, of West Africa is one that I've been very interested by recently and, 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 and you know, tried to kind of absorb a lot uh, of lessons from, you know, the poet is, the poet is always the one who takes it upon him or herself to observe and comment, uh, in what well, in observe, interpret, and, and and comment. And at some point, certainly in my development, I, I understood that that duty was was important from a very early age, really. 
Uh, I just didn't realize that craft was also critically important, you know, otherwise, you, you, you know, you, you're a journalist, you know, uh, so, or a historian. <laughs> um, and so I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's kind of balancing those two things, observing the world around you and, and, and providing a medium to discuss those issues, but not forgetting that it's, it, it has to be art as well. Well, you do pay attention to craft. You pay particular attention to musicality um, of your poetry. You use internal and end rhymes. Um, you observe, you know, observe meter and scansion. Um, but along with this, you do actually also appear to have an extensive knowledge of music, or you know, definitely a, a big interest in music. So I wondered, what's the relationship between music and poetry for you? I've always developed both the art forms in parallel. Uh, I'm not really seeing them as being certainly in my in my creative output in my creative expression. Um, I've not really seen the distinction as being one that is one that is about the differences rather than rather than the similarities, similarities in process, similarities of what you're aiming for, what you're hoping to achieve, um, what it takes. You know, hip hop is a very obvious uh, crossover point between poetry and music. Um, but I can think of, you know, so many other uh, genres like, you know, what Bob, I mean, Bob, Bob Dylan, Subterranean Homesick Blues is rap. Um, you know, jazz, you, you know, you could listen to jazz and, and learn so much about meter, you know, that you could apply directly to, to, to poetry. Uh, and I think that, I think, I think jazz has been incredibly influential, you know, um, in the 20th century for the development of poetry. Well, a father to, from a father to a daughter is uh, a point where you, you, you do reference musical terms, uh, poetic terms. Um, you use musical symbols, notation to, uh, as, as a start of stanzas. And I mean, it's about the relationship of a father uh, and a daughter. Final line is, now you decorate the walls of our temple with icons, scribbles, our family and sticks, as if to hold our hands through the growing and teach us how, and teach us both how to write uh, a poem. So say, it probably sounds a lot better if you say that. Uh, <laughs> um, your poetry. I, but anyway, I mean, I, it, you know, it's, it's just East Yorkshire to West Yorkshire, isn't it? So it's not, <laughs> it's not a massive difference in, in accents. <laughs> so what's going in there? You know, what you've talked about a dialectic before, not necessarily here, but, you know, where, where does the poem intersect with that for you? for your work uh, the first line of that poem uh where my wife has asked me uh where the poems are that i've written you know have i, have I written any poems about, about our daughter um that actually happened and uh you know that that was what that first line was the first line i wrote the poem because that was the prompt <laughs> and uh it, it was um i i started hundreds of poems you know about miriam none of them were satisfying enough none of them could capture um the scale of what she meant to me and the impact she'd had on my life um and yeah it just every every attempt was just not was not wasn't hitting the mark but in doing so it allowed me to kind of express what we'd come through to get to the point where you know, we, we were both, my wife and I were very young when we had her, um, and 
you know, Miriam, she she wasn't very well at first, and it, you know, it was just a lot of uh, a lot of really tough times. We didn't have, uh, you know, I wasn't working at the time. There wasn't a lot of money coming in. Just a real like struggle time, to be honest. You know, um, and she's the one that kept it all together, really. Um, and I think that the poem is just a homage to her um, uh, and, and her, her impact on us. It, you know, it's she's she's the one. You know, like that that came from me and me and my wife, and you know the process, the struggle, and and even in you know even in the poem, you know, I can't write the poem. Um, but she's teaching us how to how to how to live this very poetic life kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you wouldn't obviously you wouldn't get the kind of the full backstory just from reading the poem. There's a real sort of mm. together, and there's a real joy and light that comes uh, out of the poem. And uh, for, you know, for listeners of to get that insight as to who Miriam is, definitely. I don't know if this is sort of related to this, but you seem to write as I read the collection um i started to notice that you were writing quite a lot about youth or even sort of infancy um which could either be mm. your infancy or the people's you mentioned you have daughter um and so on some cases you actually explicitly write about birth as well um in mm. your mother is a different language you call the umbilical cord a first and last line of unbroken communication tossed into a medical waste bin What's the significance of a line like this? And you know the the other if, if we come down from that kind of macro level uh, observation of, of post colonialism, colonialism and empire and, and and all of that, and then come down to what it is to live in the diaspora, and what it is to be um, a British Somali family uh, living in the UK, um, that you know most likely with parents who experienced the war, escaped a very brutal war, um, and then settled in a country where, again, most likely they didn't learn the language, you know, they didn't know the language, um, they didn't know the culture or the customs, and, and, and to raise children in that environment, um, you know, was, was, has, has been incredibly difficult you know, a phenomenon that exists in, in, in that in the British Somali community where you do get some, you, you, you sometimes get parents who speak Somali and children who speak English in the same household, right? And the kids can't speak Somali very well and the parents can't speak English very well slash at all. But then at the level of cultural understanding, the gulf is even wider, you know, between between the between the generations and this has meant that you know it's made it incredibly difficult to integrate it's made it incredibly difficult to to survive to get on to do well uh, to have any kind of self-esteem um and 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 in the immediate family dynamic it's made it very difficult for there to be understanding and compassion between the generations um and and so the the last line of uh, unbroken communication being the umbilical cord that was the last time they were fully connected you know in, in this in this kind of uh, poetic uh, scenario um, you know it, it's an exaggeration but I think it's a, an important one to stress that once 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 child has left the womb and has entered the world 
they're already being conditioned for a completely different way of living life. Um, one that the parent has very little access to. And, and we have next to no access to their experience. You know, the things that have, um, have informed their belief systems and their, their value structures. So how is, has this been a way then, has poetry been a way for you to access a language that, uh, or a connection that uh, you know, might have been discarded or lost you know, somewhere a long time ago? I, I knew from being about 13, 14 that I needed to write poetry. I just didn't really understand, fully understand why. Uh, I think I think for me poetry was 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 a very safe space where I could explore uh, identity. In 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 any any individual is burdened with a whole bunch of of, of dogmas and conditions that are placed as as just by being a member of that society. But when you come from like a dual heritage or or a mixed background. You don't, you don't get half of each, you get all of both. Uh, usually what happens is you become an expert in ventriloquism or performance. You take a caricature of what it is to be English or a caricature of what it is to be Somali or a caricature of what it is to be Muslim or a caricature of what it is to be, and you exaggerate that and magnify that to, to belong. Oh, from you know, all my childhood, I was, I was, I, I felt like I was juggling. Just you know, I'd be at home, and then I, you know, it's when I've got the Somali ball in hand, right? And then if I'm at the mosque, I've got the Muslim ball in hand, and if I'm with my friends, I've got the English ball in hand, and but each one of them isn't authentic. Each one of them is just you know, expert mimicry. And, and, and what you end up doing is you, you get it wrong and you become a caricature of each of those. Um, and, and that's why we have so many instances of, of, of mental health problems from people within this kind of a, a background because you can't, you can't keep juggling these balls forever. I don't think, had I not had poetry, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to, to figure a lot of those questions out, I don't think, to be honest. You know, it's a blessing I, as well, though. Well, this is the thing, yeah. you know, you, you, are you juggling in your poems? Because sometimes you talk about um, some poems about drinking in there and alcohol, uh, which might be, yeah. you know, being a sort of uh, a Muslim or... Because Somalia is something that this identity you've you mentioned, you have to sort of juggle or you had to juggle. And it, obviously it makes its way into your poetry and it adds a texture to your poetry. And I wondered how does Somali and Somalian culture, um, how does this consciously and unconsciously work its way into your poetry? And you've talked about juggling and things like that, but you know, are you juggling when you put it on the page or is it something a bit more articulated than, than, than juggling? <laughs> I think the other thing that poetry has, has given me the space to do is to develop those perspectives. So develop those those separate perspectives, but also try and bring them, try and find a unity, you know, and, and try and, and, and craft out of these uh, disparate influences, something that I can, I can, I can form a coherent whole out of. Uh, I, I keep coming back to this definition of being an intimate observer. Um, but then I think through poetry, through a lot of self-reflection, um, I've come to a point where I embrace them all. Like I embrace every last bit of it, you know, and 
you know, Som the Somali language was only codified in the 70s. Most people had no need for a written text. The oral tradition was such that it was, it was all encompassing. You know, everything, everything was, was, was recorded in poetic form. That's the history, the culture, the laws, the conventions. Everything was put into meter, memorized, and, and, and transferred that way. And, and so the poet in, in Somali culture to this day holds a position second to none, really. Somebody who's, who's, who has developed their poetic uh, uh, skills and competencies is highly, highly, highly regarded, far more highly regarded than we do here. You know, poet, poetry in, in, in the UK or, or, in, or in the West really is, it's a province for those who admire it, usually those who write it. Poetry and culture are, are inseparable, you know, in, in, uh, in, in, Somali, in the Somali way of life. Wars have been stopped by poems and have been started by poems. But the space I choose to occupy as a poet is one that takes that, that role as being the observer um, and the, the critique of society, really. Um, to do that, I have to be a, a, a critic of myself, you know, to be able to, 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 to see those things and to observe those things and to actually say something worthwhile. Um, which I hope I hope I can, but the perspectives are what give me um, are what give me a great deal of, of of license to do that. I feel you know because there's just not many people that have have lived that the kind of life I've lived. Yeah. I've just I've not been I've not been in Somalia now for twelve years, uh, and being here now, it's just like it's it's it blows your mind. You know we might as well be on another planet sometimes. There's an image British culture gives of Somalia. I mean, what yeah, perhaps you can give a bit of a picture for us of what you know life is like in Somalia. It's a country that's organised tribally, has its positives and it has its negatives. Uh, I think with any you know socially organising mechanism, you're going to find positives and negatives. But this, you know, the positives are are really amazing. You know, they've got a social security system that's thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. You know, if somebody's ill, somebody needs help, they can rely on thousands of people around the world chipping in to, to come to their aid. You know, it's a, a, a system called Qaran. And the Qaran is that you will pay into it when you, you know, when, whenever it's required of you. And if you ever need it, you, you know, you can rely on everybody else paying, paying it out, you know. Somebody needs to go to hospital. The hospital they need is in India. We don't have great healthcare here. And I'm in Cardiff. Because we are tribal kin, I might get a call to say $50 and I'll send it. And someone else in Australia will get a call. And someone else in Canada will get a call. And we'll get that person to India and they'll, you know, they'll get their treatment and we'll get them back. And so there's things like that. There's countless things like that, which just amaze me, you know, in terms of how people are, how communitarian they are, um, and how generous they can be. You know, some of the most generous people 
other than that, really, you know. Um, people who, who don't have a lot, but take pride in sharing what they've got. And there's the positives and the negatives. I could go on all day about the negatives, you know. There's, there's, it's, um, it's tribal. <laughs> it's one of the biggest problems of it. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, um, so... Um, I mean, for people in the UK, tribal isn't a word that sort of people, you know, understand, I don't think, in the way uh, of how it manifests as a social system. <clears throat> for listeners, you should just read Samatar's pamphlet because there are the way Somalia is, is weaved in to, to just you, you do get a bit of a picture of this country and how it has influenced uh, your poetry. And it, it is fascinating to read at times. And this is what it's about, isn't it? This is what, this is what you know, you talked about tension, you talked about juggling identities, but to put it, you know, it comes out on the page and it comes out on this page as this kind of you know, glistening object that we can all sort of look into and, and, and try and understand and learn a bit more about. Mm, thanks, man. Um, a, a, way, a way to kind of define the tribalism for the, for the audience would be <laughs> to imagine... Imagine that every family, so every house was the royal family and every house thought they should be king or queen. That's what we've got. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, that's a great, um, that's a great analogy. I can imagine how much, how, um, how much prestige that brings, but also how many kind of um, conflicts that could bring actually. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. Uh, there was a, and 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 that was what a lot of the colonial agents, you know, the the kind of you know high officers or, or commandants in the Italian or the British or the French would always say, like, well, the, you know, they're a country of kings, and how how can you rule a country of kings? Everybody thinks every man is a king, and and that's what tribal society will do to you, particularly when when you've got a situation where no tribe has the coercive power over all the other tribes, you know, um, everybody thinks they're aristocracy. It creates so many tensions, you know, uh, it's very difficult to, it's very difficult to organize the people here, mm. you know, and, 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 and then because of tribal fealty, when you've got corruption in politics, people will stand by their tribal leader at the expense of um, at the expense of the country, you know, we haven't reached a point where people are willing to sacrifice for the greater good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still very tribal, and, and uh, that's it's so unfortunate because they've got they've got the resources here to 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 do better, be better, and and they've got the values and they've got the principles. They're just choosing not to adhere to them because of other values and other principles that are in conflict. And seem to be overpowering them. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, but I mean, the first time I came here was '97, and between '97 and now, and I've been I've been five times altogether. Between '97 and now, they've made you know incredible, incredible strides forward. You know, uh, I mean, I'm I'm talking about Somaliland. I've never been to Somalia. Um, you know, what we see on TV really is Mogadishu. Yeah. you know um, and, and even then you know for people I know who've been there um, again it's not all Al-Shabaab and piracy you know although they do feature 
Uh, but Somaliland has, has has no problem with piracy, no problems with, you know, this, they've had several democratic elections, um, all observed by the EU and, and, and other partners. It's peaceful, you know. My, my gran, uh, she's, you know, she's a white woman and she's been a few times. She's done, you know, she went ages ago when it was, when it was pretty undeveloped and, and she'd walk around fine, you know, and yeah, you know, it's just undeveloped because it's unrecognized. So they don't get any funding or support really, but people, people have built it, you know, again, through schemes like the, the Qaran scheme and, and things like that, you know, we don't, you know, people don't, yeah, they've built it, they protect it, they maintain the peace. So there's lots to celebrate. There's lots to celebrate, even if I do get disappointed by some of the things I see. Um, you know, I don't want to be too pessimistic. There's lots, they're going in the right direction, you know. Samatai Elmi, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me from Somaliland. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liam. It's been a, it's been a privilege to, to, uh, yeah, to participate. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Join me next time when I'm going to be joined by Jacqueline Bishop. She's going to be talking to me about her interview.